Bible there in front of you, at this point I would ask you, invite you, uh, to turn back with me to that portion of scripture that we read earlier on. So it's Genesis 6, looking from verse 9 uh, to the end of the chapter. Now for the benefit of anyone who's visiting with us this morning, or for those who haven't perhaps been out in the, in the past few weeks, let's begin this morning by refreshing our memories. Let's begin by, by taking stock. So where are we? And what are we doing in our morning services? Where are we, what are we doing? Well, we are uh, together going through a sermon series in the first, the very first book in the Bible. We're looking at Genesis chapter 1 to chapter 11. And if you can cast your mind back all the way, let's say, probably to around May, if you were around then, and if you can cast your mind back to the very first sermon we had in our series in Genesis, then you remember what we saw. We saw that the book of, of Genesis is broken up into sections. And we saw that each of the sections in Genesis begins in the same way. That each of these sections begins with a sort of repeated refrain. It begins with a, with a title. Ten times we hear the same title in Genesis. And it's the heading, This is the account of. This is the account of. And then we hear the name of the character of that new section. Now, despite the fact that we are only, where are we? We're in Genesis chapter 6. So we're not far into the book. Despite that, we have already heard that title and that heading. We've heard it twice. So what have we seen so far in our studies of Genesis? Well, we've seen this is the account of the heaven and the earth. Friends, we've seen Genesis 1 and 2. We've seen the creation, haven't we? You know, we've seen God create out of nothing, create the sky and the the land, the the earth, the moon, the stars. We've seen him create the birds and the fish and, of course, create mankind. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. But what else have we seen? What was the second heading? We saw this is the account of the line of Adam. Yeah. We've seen the creation. But we've also seen the fall, haven't we? We've seen Adam and Eve rebel against God. We've seen that sin enter upon that created paradise and tarnish it. We've seen, as we saw last week, the increase in sin to the point that it brings humanity almost to complete destruction. So, given that, given that we've got this repeated refrain in Genesis, let me ask you something. Do you see the importance of the very first verse that Gabriel read out earlier on? Do you see the importance of verse 9? See what it says? We read the words, this is the account of Noah. Friends, you see what's happening? We are now moving into a new section of Genesis. 
We've seen the creation. We've seen the fall. We've seen the increase in sin. Now we come to God's punishment on that wickedness. Today, this morning, we come to the preparations for the flood. The preparations for the flood. And we will, today for a short time, look at three points together eh, from this section of Scripture. And the first of our points is this. And we're going to have three V's this morning. So this is the first of our V's. Point one. Let's see the violence of the earth. The violence of the earth. Okay, now... If you were tuned into your TVs this week, what do you think was the uh, biggest news story of the past week? The biggest news story of the past week. I'll give you a clue. It was not Scotland's humiliating defeat to the English at football. That was not the biggest news story of the past week. No. Instead, the main story, certainly the early part of the week, was something much more uh, significant, much more serious than that. It was the increase in conflict and hostility in Egypt, wasn't it? You know, the, the, the military started to clamp down on the, the supporters of the former president. What was the guy's name? Mohammed Morsi. And that led to an increase in hostility, didn't it? That led to violence. It led to the death of somewhere around maybe 500 people. Now, did you see that on the TV screen this week? It was horrible, wasn't it? It was a bloodbath. And you see, when situations like that occur, what happens is that they become a challenge for Christians. Don't they? They are a challenge for Christians because when... People see these things on their TV screen. That usually goes hand in hand with accusations against God. You know, they see murder and they see aggression and they see violence and they say, come on, where is God? It's something like that. They see these pictures of Egypt and they say, well, come on. If God was a loving God, if he was a caring God, then he would not allow a situation like that to occur. Well, in this section of scripture that we've got here, we learn a couple of important things about that. A couple of important things about God and violence. And friends, the first of those is that the source of violence... It lies in man. The source of violence lies in man. Now, cast your mind back if you were here last week. Let me ask you, can you remember what the, the, the situation of humanity was in the time of Noah? Do you remember that? What was humanity like? Well, verse 11, it tells us something here. If your Bible's are open, you'll see it in verse 11. It says that, Humanity was ruined, or the word that's used is the word corruption, okay? The word corruption. And if you were very astute and observant, you will see that that word corruption is repeated three times 
in just a couple of verses there, and it is repeated to make a point. It's the same point as we saw last week, that every inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time. So can I ask you, what was the situation of humanity in Noah's Noah's time? It was a situation of wickedness. It was a situation of increased corruption. Okay, we get it. We know that. Let's not focus on that. Let's focus just now on where that corruption leads. Let's think about what we learn here about how the corruption, how the sin shows itself. And we see that in verse 11, because it says this. It says, the earth was corrupt and full of violence. There's the word. The earth was full of violence. Scripture is telling us here that so sinful was man, that this corruption, it showed itself... It manifested itself in a particular way that man's sin showed itself in brutality. It showed itself in aggression. It showed itself in violence. And did you see the extent of it as well? What does it say? It says the earth was corrupt and it was full of violence. This violence, this brutality was everywhere. Now, think about Genesis chapter 1. Think about what happened there. God gave mankind a charge. God commissioned man to do something. What did God tell man to do? He said, go, procreate, and fill the world. Folks, what have we done? We've filled the earth all right. But we have filled it with hostility. And we have filled it with that brutality. And we've filled it with violence. Friends, what we've got to see here is the cause. You know? The source of the problem. When it comes to violence, violence comes not... From the heart of a loving and a gracious God. Violence. It comes from the sinful and wicked soul of man. Okay. Now the second sub-point we've got to see here is that despite this. Despite man being at fault for violence. We learn here that God does not stand idly by. God doesn't stand idly by. Now, I'm sure you'd agree with me, that's what a lot of people think, isn't it? I'm sure members of your family, your friends, your colleagues, that's what they think. You know, when it comes to to atrocities that are committed, or, you know, genocide, when it comes to Nazi concentration camps, when it comes to the scenes from Egypt, people think that God just stands idly by. They think that, well, if God exists at all, then he either doesn't know about these things or simply he just doesn't care. That's what so, so many people think. But we learn here, in these verses, in this passage of Scripture, we learn that's not the case. Because 
I'm loving this verse. It's verse 11 again. Look what we're told. It's great. We are told here that it doesn't just see, it doesn't just see that the earth was corrupt. We're told more, more than that, are we? Because it, what does it say? It says, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Wasn't it? It was corrupt in God's sight. And then we go into verse 12, and what do we see? It says, God saw, God saw how corrupt the world had become. Do you see where we're going with this? Do you see the point? The God of the Bible, the one true and living God, he is not some sort of disinterested bystander. Don't think that. He is not one who turns a blind eye to the atrocities that you are seeing on your TVs. No, God sees. He sees these things. He knows these things because he is the great eyewitness to all this corruption and all this unfairness. God saw. He saw how corrupt the earth had become. But, but get this. He didn't just see, did he? You see, God also judges. He judges those who are guilty. Now, folks, that's clearly the whole point of Genesis chapter 6. That's one of the major themes, that God does not tolerate corruption. Verse 13 says, God says, I am going to put to an end. I'm going to put to an end all people for their violence. So the truth is that God sees these things, and not only that, God acts. Now, folks, depending on whether you've had your double espresso this morning, and um, depending on whether you're on the ball or not, there might be an objection that you might have to what we've seen here. Okay? You might have a problem, a counter-argument. Because you might say to me, well, that's fine. I get it. God sees the wickedness and God judges the wickedness. But you might also say, is God not stopping this violence with his own act of brutality by way of the flood? Now, are you thinking that? Well, if that's what you're thinking, please see that that is not the case. Please see that the flood in Genesis 6 is not some sort of impulsive act of vengeance. That's not what it is. You know, this flood here, this divine judgment, it is not something that is ill-conceived or ill-thought-out. No, what we've got is the perfect and holy judge. We've got the supreme authority in, in, in heaven and earth. And we've got him standing in complete opposition to, to evil and wickedness. And we have got him taking legitimate, legitimate action, holy action, pure action, to stop man's inhumanity to man. So folks, who knows what you're going to see on TV this week? 
You switch on your news on Tuesday night. Who knows what you're going to see? But whether we see, you know, pictures of Syria burning, or if we see pictures of another government in Egypt collapsing, or whether we even see pictures of rioting on the streets of London, know this. Know that when it comes to violence, we must turn to God. And not in accusation. We must turn to him. And we must see the one who is the very antithesis of brutality. He is God. He is the prince of peace. And he is a God who opposes with all of his heart the violence of the earth. The violence of the earth. Now, folks, I don't know if you are uh, fans of politics or not. I know some people are. I know some people are fanatical about the political system, especially in the UK. And these people, they tell me that budget day for them is uh, an exciting day. And uh, there was, apparently maybe last year, maybe two years ago, there was a particular budget uh, that was uh, especially fascinating, apparently. Why? Well, what happened was that the Chancellor, in advance of this budget, he had kind of announced that he had a plan, that he and the coalition government, they had a plan for the repair and the recovery of the economy. And so in the run-up to this budget there was a kind of increased level of interest. You know, how was this plan going to take shape? What was going to happen? How was it going to look, this plan? And friends, we see a parallel with that. Under our sort of second heading here, the verdict of judgment. We've seen the violence in the earth. Now we see the verdict of judgment. Because what happens in this portion of Scripture is that we are given specifics. You know, we're given the details of God's plan. Now again, if we were on the ball over the last couple of weeks in Genesis 6, we'd have seen that as we read through the chapter, three times God tells us that he has a plan. Three times. But it's only now, it's only here, in verse 17, that he gives us the specifics. It's only here we learn. It's going to be a flood. A devastating flood. Verse 17. I am going to bring flood waters on the earth. Flood waters. But let's not linger there too long. Okay, Let's not linger on the, the method or let's call it the channel of judgment. Instead, let's look at something that is fascinating. Something that's staggering in these verses. Let's note the fact that God speaks this coming judgment. See that? He mentions this judgment. Now, we read it, and what we might expect, we might expect that God keeps this to himself, this impending divine judgment. But he doesn't do that, see? He tells of the judgment, he tells this man, Noah, this is communicated judgment. It's communicated judgment. And, folks, Isn't it true that that happens elsewhere in Scripture? 
Now think about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you know that story? What happened before that? Well, God came to Abraham. And God confided in Abraham. God took Abraham into his confidence. Think about Jesus and his disciples as well. In John's Gospel, Jesus describes his disciples as his friends. And he reveals to his disciples all that the Father had revealed to him. Do you see what's happening? The case with Abraham, the case with the disciples, is the same case with Noah, and it is a miraculous and amazing thing. The God of the universe, friends, the majestic, all-powerful God, condescending to confide in mere man. But surely that raises for you and me a question, doesn't it? Why this guy? Yeah? Why Noah? What's so special about Noah that the God of the universe can fight in him? Well, thankfully, we learn the answer. Why does God confide in Noah? Verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless. He walked with God. Do you see what's happening here? God confided in Noah. Why? Because here was a man who valued and who sought after holiness. And as we try and apply that this morning, do you see that it does apply to the way that you live. It applies to your life. It applies to my life. It applies to all of us. You see, what are we? You know, okay, there's a few people away and on holiday today and all the rest of it, but let's be brutally honest about things. We're a small church. You know, we are a fragile congregation in a big city looking to reach out with the gospel. And I tell you this, We are keen. We are desperate to know what God's plan is. We are desperate to know what God's purposes are. And the same for the congregation. It's the same for you individually, is it not? You know, in that situation you're facing, in the worries or the issues that are going on, are you not just desperate to know what God's purposes are? Are you not desperate to know what, what God has in plan for you? And what do we learn verse in, in Genesis 6? We learn that an increased knowledge of the divine plans, they come with an increased pursuit of holiness. An increased knowledge of Divine plans. They come from an increased pursuit of holiness. Now, does that sound a wee bit airy-fairy and up there? What does it mean? What it means, do you want to hear from God? Do you? Well, you better be living for God. Because in Genesis 6, God communicates his plan. He speaks of his flood. And he tells a man who is living a righteous and a blameless and a holy life. 
Now I'm sure you look like a, a, a well-read group of people. I'm sure that most of you, some of you have read the, the Herman Melville book, Moby Dick. Have you read that? Well, I read Moby Dick um, when I was a kid. And uh, I remember thinking when I finished Moby Dick, I thought, ah, that was a good book. It was a good book about a whale and a sailor and Captain Ahab and the rest. But of course the thing is that you don't really dig Moby Dick. You don't really sort of understand Moby Dick until you see that it works on different levels. It works on deeper levels. Until you realize that, you don't really understand the book. And friends, we sometimes do what I did with Moby Dick. We sometimes do that with stories in Scripture, don't we? You know, what we do is we take these great, truthful accounts and narratives in Scripture and we kind of reduce them, don't we? We dilute them and we turn them just into Sunday school stories. And we take these great truths, these great accounts that God's, that God's given us, and we say, right, okay, that's just for the kids. And we do that with the likes of Samson, don't we? And we do it with maybe the feeding of the 5,000. And I tell you this, we do it with Noah, and we do it with the ark, don't we? Well, let's not make that mistake. Just now, let's look together and understand something deeper about this ark. And as we close, let's see, point three, that it is the vessel of salvation. It is the vessel of salvation. You see, what, what, what was this thing, this, this ark? It seems a bit odd, doesn't it? An ark. What was it all about? Well... The ark, the word, is, is used only here in the Old Testament and in one other place. The word's used in Exodus 2 to describe that uh, basket that the baby Moses was put in. And I guess even from that, we get a kind of an image or a picture of what this ark, Noah's ark, might, might have uh, looked like. And when Gabriel was reading through the verses there, did you see the detail? Of the ark. It was incredible detail, wasn't it? Um, it's all incredibly exact because you know the ark, the type of wood had to be exact. The exterior finish, the exact dimensions, the architectural detail, all of that was precise. All of that was exact. But folks, hear this, please. If you hear anything today, please hear this. We could marvel at the design details of the ark and we could miss the point of the story. We could marvel at the blueprint of this ship and we could leave here not understanding anything about this ark. So I ask you just now, do you see the ultimate purpose of the ark? Do you see and know what it was all about? You see, this ark wasn't just a boat. This ark wasn't just 
a rescue, rescue ship of sorts. It was much more than that. This ark was a precursor. This ark was a type. This ark was a sign. This ark was a foreshadow of something to come, someone to come. Think about it. You see, this ark pointed to the one through whom the Father would save his people. This ark pointed to the place of salvation. It pointed to the only place, the only place where we can be saved from destruction. This ark, it pointed to the one through whom God would restore and renew and make new his creation. Do you see it? That the ark pointed to the true and ultimate vessel of salvation. The ark, it points to Christ. And did you see its size? Did you get the scale of this thing? You know, you do all the sort of conversions... And what you find is that the displacement of the ark was something like 43,000 tons. When you do all the calculations, what you find is that inside the ark, there was 1.4 million cubic feet of space. Do you see the point? It was massive. It was enormous. And friends, the good news is that just as that ark was big, so too is God's grace. And this morning, I tell you that there is room in the vessel of salvation for you. There is room enough for you in Jesus Christ today. So I guess, as we end all this, and as we end our look at Genesis chapter 6, we have to do so with just one really simple, obvious question. You ready for it? Where are you? Really, where are you? Are you inside? Or are you outside the ark? Are you saved in Christ? Or are you facing destruction? Are you in the vessel of salvation? And if you're not, please hear these words. Repent. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, just now, come aboard. Come aboard. Let's pray.